Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 7 of my book entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, I'm going to cover all of chapter 4 which is entitled The Dynamic Heavens. In the previous chapters, I've focused a lot on the Earth's relationship to the sun and the moon and humanity's attempt to understand it and celebrate it. This is how humanity has been able to create a calendar by focusing on how we relate to the moon cycles and the sun cycles in relationship to the earth. But in today's episode, it's going to be a little different. I'm going to focus on earth's relationship to the stars beyond the sun. What comes to your mind when you think of the North Star? Do you think it is the brightest star in the sky? Do you think it is a permanent star that has been used for direction? Or maybe you just don't know anything about it at all. No matter what you know about the North Star, I hope in today's episode, you're going to learn something new about it. Because I'm going to use the North Star to help me build a picture into what I'm going to dive deeper into over the next several chapters of my book. We understand Earth's tropical seasons, where we have spring, summer, fall, and winter, but in today's episode, I'm going to start getting you to think a little bit bigger than that, bigger than the course of a year. And finally, in this chapter, I bring back those ancient green Saharans, the Kiffians of about 10,000 years ago and the Tenarians of about 6,000 years ago. Because in today's chapter, we're going to go much deeper back in time than any previous chapter yet. That includes going older than the 19,000-year-old Lascaux cave paintings in France. And I'm also going to focus a little bit on another ancient, brilliant mathematician and astronomer named Hipparchus and how crucial his discoveries and understanding were to all of the Western world. This episode is a little bit of a long one, so I'd like to get right into it. Please like, rate, and review if you've been enjoying this podcast series. And please consider giving a donation if you're really enjoying what you're finding here. With each donation, I give a free PDF copy of my book, which means you don't have to wait for all the rest of the episodes to come out to find out what else I have to share. 
but even more, you get to see all of the images I put into my book along with their explanations, which I think is definitely worth even just a small donation to see. For this particular episode, there are some diagrams that help show what I am trying to explain. And of course, as always, if you would like to follow No Character Limit, you can do so at nocharacterlimit at mastodon.world for updates. So let's get into the dynamic heavens of Ultima Thule Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 4, The Dynamic Heavens, Part 1, Hipparchus Finds a Procession. The Earth's daily tick and its yearly tock brings us predictable patterns and cycles that all living creatures have come to depend on. Species split themselves up to thrive in the daytime or at night, and hibernate, migrate, shed, or bloom based on the Earth's position around the sun. Night and day, as well as the seasons, are the cycles that all life get to experience with enough regularity to adapt to them in so many familiar ways. But what if there are greater cycles that we are blind to because nobody lives long enough to truly feel their impact. For example, imagine experiencing a solstice once every 10,000 years, or an eclipse that took 30,000 years to fully settle over the sun, and another 30,000 to completely go away. If the Earth had such changes that happened so slowly and on such a large scale, how would it affect us, and would we ever even know it? It turns out, large-scale seasonal cycles do exist that take tens of thousands of years to complete. Even more shocking is this was not the discovery of modern science, but instead from another man of antiquity. The 2nd century BCE astronomer and mathematician Hipparchus of Nicaea first glimpsed upon these deep seasons from Earth. This was the same Hipparchus, who was the first Western astronomer to figure out a reliable method to predict eclipses, and the same Nicaea, where the Catholic Church decreed the cosmological date of Easter 450 years later, which would ultimately cause so much headache for the 16th century Catholic Church. Hipparchus is one of Nicaea's earliest gifts to the world, remembered for being one of the most well-respected astronomical geniuses of all time. 
living after Thales and Eratosthenes, but before Sosagenes, the ancient Greek Hipparchus easily outshines each of them. To get an idea of just how brilliant Hipparchus was, consider that even though he lived two centuries before Sosagenes, he was able to calculate the solar year to within six minutes making his calculations five minutes better than that which the Julian calendar was founded on. If his version of the solar calendar was used, it's possible that the subtle drift in the calendar might not have been addressed until hundreds of years after Lilius. Even more, Hipparchus was able to determine the length of a lunar month to within a second. Beyond predicting a single eclipse like Thales had done, Hipparchus was the man who actually figured out the method to predict them on a regular basis, and it was used for centuries after. He even used one lunar eclipse in two different locations to determine the distance between the two locations on Earth. And the only reason he was able to do that was because Hipparchus practically invented the latitude and longitude grid that is still used today and is the basis for all of modern cartography and global positioning thus improving on Eratosthenes' work of understanding the size of the Earth. Hipparchus was able to do all of this because he reached back into ancient Babylonian mathematics and grasped their base 60 number system and saw the beauty in it. Despite the Greeks of his time using a base 10 system, Hipparchus saw how the sexagesimal system divided up the circle, something that Thales of Miletus must have also learned as well. But it was Hipparchus who nearly single-handedly saved the base 60 number system from falling into obscurity. He basically used the base 60 system to invent the mathematics of trigonometry which later was essential for Al-Batani's very accurate calculations for the length of the year, hundreds of years later. Despite Hipparchus's brilliance, the Greeks and other Western mathematicians did not embrace this new math of trigonometry in the same way that the Arabs did. And for centuries after, the greatest mathematicians and astronomers would come from the Arab world, rather than the European one. Despite Hipparchus's extraordinary brilliance and contributions, as the centuries passed, Hipparchus also began to disappear under the dunes of time. Nearly all of his work has been lost aside from a single commentary he made on a popular poem of the time called Phenomena by Eratus. Phenomena is a long, meticulous poem that celebrates nearly the entirety of the night sky. 
it meanders through different celestial features, including the northern constellations, the southern constellations, the visible planets of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, the rising of the zodiac signs, and even takes some time to discuss Earth's weather, which was clearly another sky-based phenomena. In all, Phenomena is a grandiose homage to the sky, but it wasn't a work of scholarly science. It was a literary work of art, where the importance of wordplay would often take precedence over scientific accuracy. Due to its popularity at the time, when Hipparchus read the Phenomena, he made sure to point out some of the celebrated poem's inaccuracies. So, while his comments on the phenomena are the only surviving original work of Hipparchus, his accomplishments are mainly remembered through the famous astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy, who lived about 300 years after Hipparchus. Ptolemy's most famous work is the Almagest, a dense 13-book collection on astronomy that was the authority on the subject in both the European and Arabic worlds for over 1,500 years, until the 17th century. It would take until the age of Lilius, Galileo, and Johannes Kepler to finally rewrite the authority on the sky. And while Ptolemy's Elmagest is impressive, the knowledge he draws upon appears to largely be derived from the works of Hipparchus. So for over 1,800 years then, Hipparchus was able to still best the greatest minds in both the Arabic and European cultures, cementing his titanic accomplishments into world history. Though for all of the things Hipparchus got right, he got at least one thing wrong. In the 3rd century BCE, the ancient mathematician and astronomer Aristarchus came up with one of the earliest heliocentric models of the universe over 100 years before Hipparchus was alive. To Hipparchus, Aristocracy's heliocentric model did not stand the test of some of Hipparchus's mathematical scrutiny, although neither did the competing geocentric model of the time either. With all of his brilliance, he still did not have access to the level of knowledge that we have today, of which his contribution to is incalculable. But Hipparchus imperfectly endorsed the geocentric model over the heliocentric one. This would have lasting consequences. The geocentric model was then subsequently carved into the most important astronomical textbook to have ever existed by the hand of Ptolemy and remained the predominant model of the universe for nearly 2,000 years. Hipparchus's mistake, along with his accomplishments, helped shape humanity's limited view of the universe. 
It was the distant echo of Hipparchus's decision, which even shaped the outlook by the Catholic Church at the time of Copernicus, Galileo, and Lilius, where they actively punished those who shared the revelation that the heliocentric model was actually correct. And while the original mistake was Hipparchus's, it is undoubtable that with the evidence presented by the likes of Copernicus and Galileo, that Hipparchus would have been swayed to change his mind, as he was a man of science before men of science existed. Observations and calculations don't go unrivaled for nearly two millennia because they were done by a man who based his decisions on opinion. Yet, for the Catholic Church, it was ironically human hubris that stymied the advancement of science that impeded divine truth. Thus, the impact of Hipparchus is not to be understated, and it took the brilliance of a man like Hipparchus to notice another celestial season beyond the cycles of day and night and the seasons of the year. Inspired at finding what he thought was a new star in the heavens, at a time when the sky was thought to be fixed like a picture, he calculated the positions of over 1,000 stars in the sky and compared them to a similar chart written by an old astronomer named Timacharis, who lived 166 years before him. When Hipparchus compared the two sets of data, he was surprised to find that all of the stars seemed to have shifted nearly two degrees in the sky from a century and a half earlier. This means that over the course of one year, the stars moved about 50 arc seconds in the sky, indistinguishable to the naked eye. But, over the course of centuries, these arc seconds added up to arc minutes, changing the whole arrangement of the stars in the sky, shifting them in some inexplicable way. Hipparchus dared ponder what could make the alleged unchanging sky to also slip from its fixed position ever so slowly. While measuring the year by the seasons is known as the tropical year, there is also another way to measure the year as well, known as the sidereal year. While the tropical year could easily be measured by using the arrival of the equinoxes and the solstices alone, the sidereal year requires even closer attention. Paying attention to these precise locations of stars in the sky on the equinoxes, rather than just paying attention to the sun and the earth alone, was another way to mark a year. Go out and look at the sky at the same time of night, but during different seasons, and you'll see the same stars shift their position in the sky at different times of the year. When these stars return to their same position in the sky at the same time of night as the original observation, that has been one sidereal year. 
For example, if you go out and look at the Big Dipper on the spring equinox at midnight, it will be in a different location in the sky at midnight on the first day of summer, and different yet again in the autumn and winter. Only when you are about a year from your original spring equinox observation do you get to see the stars in that exact same position as your first observation. Yet, if you were to make very precise observations of both the solar equinox and when the stars return to the same place in the sky, you will notice a very slight difference in the length of the tropical year from the sidereal year. So, there were two ways to measure the length of a year. One by the relatively closer sun, and the other by the location of distant stars in the sky. To the average person, these two independent ways to track a year seem to coincide nicely with each other, and at first, appear to be the same. If you go out at sunset to look at the night sky on the night of the spring equinox, the stars will look to be in the exact same position the following spring equinox at sunset. But with this data from Timocharis from over 150 years before Hipparchus lived, he realized that the sidereal year and the tropical year were not the same. The stars slipped from a year in a similar and annoying way just as the days on the calendar slipped compared to the tropical year. But while the days slipping compared to a year had to do with humans not knowing the exact length of a solar year, the slipping of the stars was due to something different. Since Hipparchus discovered this slipping of stars, he used the equinox to make sure that his data was as accurate as possible. This slipping of the sidereal year compared to the tropical year was just another mystery of the universe discovered by the ingenious Hipparchus. That slight slipping of the stars in the sky each equinox is known as the precession of the equinoxes, or equinoctial precession, or just simply as precession. As we observe the sky on the night of each spring equinox, the stars slip slightly and imperceptibly from their previous year's position that over the course of only centuries, the sky can look entirely different than it used to. Of course, the autumn equinox or either of the solstices would work just as fine to mark the same phenomenon, so long as you continued to use that as the same marker every year. So, when measured, this sidereal year is strangely about 20 minutes longer than the tropical year. And just as Sausagines in accuracy of 11 minutes for the Julian calendar didn't seem like too much of a problem at first, 
the differences can be huge over the course of centuries or millennia. The reason for this discrepancy is something Hipparchus could not have known. There is a 20-minute difference between the time it takes us to go one full revolution around the sun compared to the time it takes for the Earth to reach the same position in space again where the stars in the sky were the previous equinox. He would have needed to take into account not only how long it takes to travel around the sun, but the fact that the sun and the Earth are also traveling around the Milky Way galaxy. Just to give a more human-sized visual idea of the difference between the tropical year and the sidereal year, imagine a car sitting still on a long straight road with a vast mountain range off in the distance that parallels the road. If the car stays still and a person decides to run around the car, let's say starting from the driver's side door, we would be able to know exactly how long it takes for the person to run around back to the same spot again. That is like the tropical year. And in that scenario, when the runner returns to the driver door, the view of the mountain range would be identical from their start. But now imagine the car traveling at half a mile an hour down the road. When the person runs around the car this time, we could measure exactly where they reached the driver door again. But they would now need to run a little further past that, say the rear driver door, to be in the spot where the view of the mountain range was exactly as it was when they started running. This would be like the sidereal year. The sun and the earth are moving in a direction in space, around the Milky Way, and it's understandable that the stars seen in the sky would shift in a somewhat similar manner as the distant mountains would for a person running around a very slow-moving car. It's not a perfect example, but hopefully it gives a more proportional comparison. Chapter 4, Part 2, Lodestars The best example of the impact of the procession of the equinoxes in action is by looking at the North Star. In any time-lapse star trail image in the Northern Hemisphere, there is always one star that sits right near the center like a pin that all other stars travel in arcs around. But of course, the stars are not really moving across the sky. Instead, this movement highlights the Earth's spin so while the North Star appears mysteriously affixed in an otherwise twirling sky, the lack of movement from the North Star has everything to do with the Earth 
and nothing to do with the star itself. Entirely by chance, the North Star just happens to be located nearly perpendicular to the plane of Earth's rotation. The North Star has a name, Polaris. Just after dusk, go outside in any rural sky in the Northern Hemisphere, look for the Big Dipper, and then follow the two stars that make up the front of the Dipper across the sky. And the first bright star you will find is Polaris. Polaris is about the 50th brightest star in the sky, which makes it less remarkable than most people think, and can be difficult to spot in well-lit areas. As you look at Polaris in the sky, Take note of any neighboring stars and their relationship to Polaris. Once again, the Big Dipper might be the easiest to spot. Now, just before dawn on that same night, head back outside and look for the Big Dipper again. What you'll find is that the famous constellation had traveled a significant distance across the sky while Polaris is exactly in the same position that it was earlier that night. It's this feature that earned Polaris its nickname, Lodestar. The word Lodestar translates to a star that determines the way or course for travel, and Polaris has carried this nickname for well over 800 years. As slaves from the southern states in the U.S. escaped north, they searched for the Drinking Gourd, what today we call the Big Dipper, and followed the two stars towards Polaris to help find which direction was north. No matter a person's location, they only needed to orient themselves on that one special star that never appears to move in the sky, and instantly they have a sense of direction. Before the invention of the lodestone, or the compass, Polaris would guide seafaring explorers who had no other reference point around to ensure direction. The importance of the North Star for direction was so critical that Anybody that has been lost over the course of the last 1,500 years could search for the northern sky and find the lodestar, the sole point of stability in the reeling heavens. Like the equinoxes and the eclipses, Polaris offered a rare grip on something stable in an otherwise constantly slipping universe. It takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds for the light of the sun to travel across the depths of 96 million miles of space to reach the Earth, and 5 full hours for that same light to reach Pluto. The Voyager 1 spacecraft that was launched from Earth in 1977 takes 19 hours to transmit information to Earth at the speed of light due to how far it has traveled. But 
These vast distances are all within the solar system, where the sun's dominance is nearly total. Yet Polaris calls to us on Earth from a distance of 430 light years away. This means that the light from Polaris that reached the Earth in 2021 left the lodestar within a decade of the implementation of the Gregorian calendar, some point in the 1590s. At such distances, our minds begin to lose any sort of context to work with. The 19 hours of distance between Earth and Voyager 1 messages is at least a time period people can understand, because everyone has experienced 19 hours. It's a long time to wait for a light to turn on, but it's a comprehensible amount of time. But even with light traveling at the fastest known speed in the universe, which is 186,292 miles per second, a distance like that of Polaris's needs 430 years for its light to reach Earth. Polaris is not just one star either, but instead it's comprised of three stars, creating what is known as a triple star system. This means that there are three stars within a few billion miles of each other that all contribute to each other's orbit, and together the light they create is known to us as the North Star. But as is typical with most star systems, one of the stars often far outshines the others, and in this case, the shining leader is called Polaris A. The other stars in the system, Polaris AB and Polaris B, are dwarf stars, the glowing embers of a star life well lived, a sort of stellar retirement. Polaris A is about 38 times larger than the Sun, and over 1200 times brighter. All three Polaris stars burst into existence, appearing anew in the Earth's sky about 70 million years ago, and they have hung there ever since. But how long they will hang there is still not known. Stars the size of Polaris A don't live as long as stars like our Sun. They burn brighter and they die faster, and it's possible that within the next few million years, Polaris A could explode into a supernova, lighting up the night sky like a second moon for weeks. But it's also possible that Polaris could still be around for a billion years to come, sputtering light and dimming until one day, it's not visible to the naked eye any longer. Either way, one day, it will no longer be able to guide any species that may be alive on Earth with the sentience to look up for its direction. But Polaris has not always been, nor will always be, the North Star. 
North Star is merely a championship title bestowed upon Earth's northernmost point in the sky. This is one of the effects of the procession of the equinoxes. One day, Polaris will slowly slip out of center and spin in the night sky like all the rest of the stars seen from Earth, slowly setting down the title to eventually be passed on to another. Polaris only became the North Star within the last 1500 years, and although Polaris seems like it's the only fixed point in the sky, it's not directly centered, as it happens to be about three-quarters of a degree off, ensuring slight movement throughout the course of each night, imperceptible to the naked eye. But each year, Polaris does continue to creep closer to the center, until finally, in March of 2100 CE, within the lifetime of many people who are alive today, it will reach its maximum zenith in our sky, although still remaining slightly off-center. Then, as March 2100 turns to April 2100, Polaris will start to slip gradually away from the center, and once again begin to spin around the polar north, along with the rest of the stars in the night sky. And slowly, over the course of centuries, it will set aside its title and position of North Star. Slightly dimmer in the northern sky, not far from Polaris, is the star Kokab, a relatively closer star located only 130 light years away. What Kokab lacks in distance, it makes up for in age. Compared to the 70 million year old Polaris, Kokab has been a constant presence in Earth's night sky for 3 billion years, a fixture above for nearly the entirety of the Earth's existence. Today, Kokab is known as one of the guardians of the pole along with the star Furcad, because they both swing tightly around Polaris, like a pair of bodyguards. Although today, Kokab is unremarkable in the glittering night sky, it was the previous title holder of the North Star before Polaris. From around 1500 BCE to about 100 CE, Kokab was the coveted lodestar of the sky to any ancient traveler, while Polaris worked as a mere guardian instead. Kokab was the North Star for 1,000 years before the Battle of the Eclipse and continued to hold that title all the way until the era where Julius Caesar and Sausagines were figuring out a new calendar system. By the time the Council of Nicaea formed in 325 CE to affix Easter to the motion of the heavens, there was no lodestar. For about 
400 years between 100 CE and 500 CE, there were only stars that came close to the polar north, like Polaris, Kokab, and Furcad, but none that actually fell so close to claim the official title, all spinning around a vacant center of seemingly empty space. Before Kokab, the North Star was held by Thuban, a giant star 303 light-years away, but much dimmer than either Kokab or Polaris. Yet, for what it lacked in luminosity, it made up for in accuracy, as it came closer to the polar north than either Kokab or Polaris. Thuban was a true lodestar, pinned directly due north, unmoved in the sky, for millennia. Thuban held this title of North Star from about 3700 BCE to 1900 BCE, shining dimly overhead at the end of the humid Sahara, as desert began to consume the lands of the humid Sahara a young Egyptian civilization must have noticed this faint star holding still in the night sky, while all other stars seemed to hinge around it. It's likely these ancients used this star to travel, as they understood its importance as they began building the Egyptian civilization. And there is even evidence to prove how revered Thuban was by these ancient people. As the Egyptians built the world-famous Great Pyramid of Giza, they built a special chamber within that opened up directly into the night sky, where Thuban would have been over 4,000 years ago, once we take into consideration its changing place from the procession of the equinoxes. One passage indicates that the king would, quote, cross to that side on which there are imperishable stars, that I may be among them, end quote. The imperishable stars included the stars of the pole at the time, including Thuban and close guardian stars, such as Kokab. It may be that the collective stars around the pole were considered sacred for their steadiness in the sky. The importance of the polar star was a tradition that had been followed since at least about 2700 BCE, nearly 5,000 years ago, when the very first pyramid ever built by the immortalized architect Imhotep was created for King Djoser. King Djoser's pyramid was built as a staircase to the northern stars, precisely aligned to their direction. In the northern buildings at the Grand Complex can be found an unusual limestone box with a statue of King Djoser inside of it. Egyptians believed that spirits could inhabit statues of their likeness, and this statue of Djoser is unique 
because it's completely encapsulated inside of the box and is angled upward, so the body is facing the northern sky. In this giant limestone cube, two holes were drilled aligned with the statue's eyes so that when darkness came, it would stare directly at the place where Thubin would have been in the sky all those millennia ago. For centuries to come, Imhotep's pyramids and alignment to Thubin would inspire generations of Egypt's most powerful leaders to build structures with similar relationships to the heavens. Although dim, Thuban is a binary star system, having two stars that orbit each other at close ranges. But like Polaris, there is a dominant star within the system that provides most of the light. Thuban has been the first true North Star in thousands of years by the time it took position around 3700 BCE, where previously all the stars in the northern sky spun around a black void, much in the same way that the stars in the southern hemisphere do today. From having nothing in the northernmost point in the sky to having Thubin there for about 2,000 years, then Kokab for 400 years, and finally Polaris for about 2,500 years, these three lodestars have collectively guided humanity for just about the last 6,000 years. But other stars will hold and have already held the grand title of North Star as well, while they bide their time and wait their chance at the center again. In about a thousand years from now, around the year 3000 CE, Polaris will begin to be replaced by the much dimmer star of Eri, until about 5200 CE. Only 45 light years from Earth, Eri is one of the closest North Stars, but commands respect for its age, being a staggering 6.6 .6 billion years old. By comparison, the Earth and Sun have only existed for about 4.5 billion years. So, for about 2 billion years, Eri drifted through the sunless Milky Way galaxy, destined to one day become the northernmost star on a planet that did not yet exist and that planet would orbit a star that also did not yet exist. Living creatures could look up from Earth to see the birth of Polaris 70 million years ago, and even single-celled organisms existed when Kokab ignited 3 billion years ago. In both cases, the Earth existed, no matter how different it was from today. And if it became possible to travel back in time, 
we could watch the birth of these lodestars. But Eri is just so ancient that it was already billions of years old when it watched the sun and the earth form. Eri is just less than half the age of the 13.8 billion year old universe. Eri also has interested exoplanet finders as one has been discovered within its star system. If life exists there, it has the potential of being billions of years older than life on Earth. Yet, for what Eri has in age, it lacks in precision, because Eri will not come as close as Polaris or Thuban to Earth's polar north. But after Eri holds the title of Pole Star for over two millennia in about the year 5200 CE, Eri will too begin to slip from its favorable position as the Earth's most northern star and give way to Alduramin, only 49 light years away from Earth, so close that its light reaches Earth in a human lifespan, only four light years further out than Eri. Its age is less certain but it's not likely to be older than a few hundred million years. Eighteen times as bright as the sun, Alduramin completes one full rotation twice as fast as the Earth spins, a stunningly fast pace. By comparison, the sun's leisurely rotation is about 30 days with Alduramin being about twice the size of the sun, this 12-hour rotation has made the star an astronomical outlier for astronomers. Alduramin pushes the boundaries of known physics with its breakneck spin and massive size. In the time it takes for the sun to rise and set on Earth, the massive star's full spin cycle accomplishes what takes the sun nearly an entire month to do. Basically, for the time it takes the sun to rotate once, Alduramin had already spun about 60 times. This rotational speed creates huge convection currents that generate massive magnetic fields and X-rays in a way that is unseen in other stars of its class. Alduramin is an unusual outsider with its own secrets of the universe tucked away inside. And it also just happens to be our pole star about 3,000 years into the future. But by the year 8700, Alduramin will have also spun away from center, leaving no true north star. But the 19th brightest star in the night sky will come close, Deneb. Deneb will hold this closest position as a pseudo-north star until about the year 11,000, 
only coming within about 7 degrees of the pole, a North Star placeholder for several thousand years. By comparison, Polaris comes within 1 degree, so Deneb will still have some movement throughout the course of any given night. Deneb is a relatively young star at about 10 million years old, but it is an incredibly bright star as it shines from a distance of 1,500 to 2,600 light years away. Most stars that can be seen by the naked eye are only dozens or hundreds of light years away because stars as far away as Deneb are difficult to see. But Deneb is not only able to be seen from Earth, it is one of the brightest stars in the sky. Deneb is able to be seen from Earth because it subscribes to the class of stars that live fast and die young, already having burned up nearly all of its hydrogen, the main fuel for stars. While 10 million years may seem like an eternity to a human, it is barely childhood for most stars especially compared to the likes of the ancient 6.6 billion year old Airy. While Airy has wisely conserved its glow to bear witness to half of the history of the universe, Deneb was destined to live a life of burning bright and dying young. If Deneb were placed the distance of 45 light years away from Earth, where Airy is located, Deneb would be so bright that it would cast enough light on the Earth as a crescent moon does, enough to leave shadows. Imagine how such a star would have impacted the human psyche if it was so close to Earth. From a distant corner of the Milky Way, Deneb blasts light 50,000 to 60,000 times brighter than the sun, and is over 100 times larger. Deneb is a symbol of power in our night sky, commanding a presence that far outshines so many closer stars. But for its might, Deneb will pay the ultimate price and die in a catastrophic supernova. And at the rate it's burning fuel, its time may be sooner rather than later. But how soon? No one knows. Its role as even a quasi-North Star will not be long on a universal timescale. Then, for a brief 500 years between the year 11,000 and 11,500, the small binary star of Delta Cygni will take the title of North Star, and its brief stay as the pole star is symbolic of its brilliance compared to which star comes next. Almost as soon as Delta Cygni took the title, it was given away again to Vega, the 
fifth brightest star in the sky, outshining even that of Deneb. Compared to Deneb, Vega is nearly on top of us at a close 25 light years away. And why only four other stars in the sky outshine it? While Vega is brighter to us on Earth, it is only because it is immensely closer compared to Deneb. But Vega has staying power, having been around 450 million years compared to Deneb's brief 10 million. Proximity alone doesn't explain all of Vega's brightness, though. There are many other stars just as close, or closer, that don't shine as brightly. Vega is also twice the size of the sun, and 40 times as bright. Vega will not come as close to the pole as Polaris is today, but it will last in the sky as the best North Star for about 3,000 years. No doubt, to have this star that is so bright come with the mystique of barely moving in the sky has played a role on the human psyche when it last appeared as the lodestar thousands of years ago. Even today, the common misconception about the North Star is that it's the brightest. When Vega is the North Star, this actually becomes almost true. So then, by the year 16,000, Vega will be replaced by Iota Herculis as the next pole star. Although over 1,600 times brighter than the sun, its nearly 500 light-year distance has not warranted Iota Herculis to stand out enough like Vega, Deneb, or even Polaris to receive a popular nickname. Therefore, Iota Herculis is called by its scientific name, a system used by modern astronomers to label every star in the night sky. Stars are named for within the constellation they appear, and labeled with the Greek alphabet in order from the brightest, alpha, on down to the dimmest. Therefore, Iota Herculis is found in the constellation of Heracles, and is the ninth brightest star in a constellation that already isn't known for its brilliance. Today, astronomers study Iota Herculis because it presents an unusual lack of iron compared to other stars of its type. When stars behave differently than their like-classified peers, such as Iota Herculis's lack of iron or Alduramin's incredibly fast rotation, it draws the attention of astronomers because they are evidence that there is still more to understand about the universe. And then Tau Herculis meaning that it's the 19th brightest star within the constellation of Heracles, will finally become the North Star in the year 18,400, a 
distant future we can't begin to comprehend. And while we can't imagine what things will be like on Earth in 18,400 CE, we do know what their sky will look like. It will look almost exactly like the sky the ancient Kiffians of Gobero and the pit makers of Warren Field in Scotland saw nearly 10,000 years ago. Tau Hercules fixes itself to within one degree of the polar north, which is four times closer than Iota Hercules was before it. When the people 10,000 years ago realized that this star did not move in the sky, how did it affect them? As the Sahara turned into the humid Sahara, Tau Hercules was a natural lure for the sub-Saharan Africans to follow it north, taking the Kiffians to a bountiful, blooming, and largely unoccupied land. If the hunter-gatherers of Warren Field were able to track the moon cycle and the winter solstice, then there is little doubt that these ancient people recognized the value of Tau Hercules' steady light. And no matter what the world will happen to be like in the year 18,400 CE, they too will have the astronomical waypoint of Tau Hercules to help guide their way. Fast forward about another couple thousand years to around 21,000 CE, and the star Edisic will follow Tau Hercules as the next lodestar. While Tau Hercules reigned over the beginning era of the humid Sahara during Kiffian times, the age of the Tenarians was reigned over by Edisic, another near-north star like Deneb or Vega. At about four degrees away from center, Edisic would have spun in a close circle during the end of the humid Sahara and during the fall of the Tenarians and the early rise of the Egyptians. And as the centuries crept by and Egypt became a growing ancient power, their astronomers would have noticed a true North Star creeping to within a degree of center, Thuban, the most accurate of all the lodestars. This will be the same thing for the distant people of the future who will one day come to live around the year 22,000 CE. They too will once again experience the most accurate pole star to grace the northern skies. What will the impact be on that distant future civilization? Will they build a millennia-spanning monument like the Egyptian pyramid to honor it? Then, after Thuban's reign, another, even more distant future generation will once again have Cocab, just as Thales of Miletus, Sausagenes, and Caesar did. And then, finally, in about the year 27,792 CE, the people of this faraway future will look up into the sky 
and see something familiar to us living today. Polaris, as it is within 100 years of its closest approach to center, just like it is in our sky right now, one procession ago. This changing of the lodestars is just a glimpse into the impact of the 26,000-year-long seasonal cycle of the procession of the equinoxes that Hipparchus discovered to exist. Each star taking watch overhead like an angel with proud names and personalities. Polaris the Three-Eyed, Eri the Ancient, Alduramin the Swift, Deneb the Distant, Vega the Brilliant, Thubin the Precise. Each pole star comes with its own personality and is distinct from the next. Meanwhile, generations of humans and other life on Earth toil away beneath these slow and subtle changes, never knowing how the sky shifts ever so imperceptibly above. That is, until Hipparchus came along and captured its secret. But lest we forget, it is not the stars that are moving in the sky, but instead the Earth moving in some strange third way beyond the rotation and revolution. The title of the North Star is passed in a circle for about 25,772 years because that is about the length of one equinoctial procession, sort of like how a year is made up of 365 days or one moon cycle is 29 and a half days. I have this really great image in my book of a circle that the path of the procession will take that shows exactly when and where each of the stars I just talked about will be and when it will become the North Star. The timescale of the procession of the equinoxes is far greater than that of any solar or lunar cycle that we as humans have gotten used to. If the Earth is like a spinning top, the procession of the equinoxes is what it would look like if the top had a slight wobble while spinning, tilting to one side or another, never completely upright. And so, naturally, our mind comes to wonder, what was it like nearly 26,000 years ago when humans were looking up into a sky that looked exactly like ours today. And while there is not a lot of evidence on what that ends up looking like, there is one place we can look to get a very brief glimpse into what human life was like one equinoctial procession ago. And that place is known as Dolni Vestonite. Chapter 4, Part 3, A Distant Rhyme, Dolni Vestonice. Imagining 26,000 years from now, one equinoctial procession into the future 
immediately stuns our imaginations. There are just too many factors for us to predict only a couple of years into the future, let alone 26,000. But we can look back and see what was happening 26,000 years ago, one equinoctial procession into the past, and look at what remains from a distant people who, when they lived, shared our sky as we see it today. It's true that nearly everything of what life was like for people 26,000 years ago has been lost, but scientists have unearthed some secrets about our human ancestors from over 20,000 years ago. First, it was a colder time back then. The middle of an ice age with woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. An archaeological site named Dolny Vestonice, discovered in what is today the Czech Republic, shows just how long civilization has existed. The Venus is perhaps the most famous piece of ancient ceramics from Dolny Vestonice. The large breasts, wide hips, and large stomach of the clearly human figurine gave the archaeological site a lot of notoriety. While initially presumed to be a sexual symbol, experts have claimed that it is most probably a likeness of an older, post-childbearing woman. Breasts and bodies stretched large and sagging with age. This statuette is amazing because it, along with the other artifacts of Dolny Vestonice, are the oldest known ceramics ever discovered in the world. Before even the creation of pottery, the people of Dolny Vestonice were living in villages taking clay from the earth and mixing it with crushed mammoth bone, a byproduct of the staple food of these people. Along with the Venus, hundreds of other figurines depicting familiar sights such as lions, rhinos, and mammoths were the familiar fauna of our equinoctial procession cousins. These 700 figurines of Dolny Vestonice lay scattered around two uncovered ancient kilns were all found with an unusual characteristic. Every single one of them were cracked. While at first someone might assume that 26,000-year-old pottery would naturally be cracked, the figurines of Dolny Vestonice were cracked at the time of their creation, and they all lay scattered around their ancient kilns. This indicates that they were intentionally put into the kiln, still wet, so that each would pop in the high temperature. The significance of this burst from each figurine cracking open with a loud pop as they were being heated in the kiln is anyone's guess. What could a people five times more ancient than the earliest Egyptians have been thinking 
such a deep dive into time would be genuinely difficult for any of us today to truly comprehend. But at the same time, they were still us, genetically identical in all the ways that matter. They lived the human experience as we do today. Were these figurines part of some emotional, spiritual ritual of the sort that religions the world over still practice today? Were they to honor certain animals or people in hopes of some form of protection, strength, or luck? Was it a game? Or were they merely discarded figurines that did not heat properly in the kiln? Like listening to an echo of an echo, we can only piece together so much about what life was like at Dolny Vestonice. But we can say that they looked up at Polaris in the sky to guide them. The site of Dolny Vestonice existed for roughly 5,000 years between 28,000 and 23,000 BCE, making them our sky twins. The constellations overhead glimmering in nearly the exact same positions as they glimmer for us today. The early settlers of Dolny Vestonice likely had Thuban overhead first, but as the centuries passed into millennia, Thuban eventually gave way to Kokab, and then ultimately to Polaris. The site of Dolny Vestonice lay along a mammoth migration route, ensuring that a people that knew how to hunt would never go hungry. And for this reason, Dolny Vestonice lasted thousands of years. And there was no doubt that the people of Dolny Vestonice could hunt. Their homes were made of mammoth bone, and it was likely that the giant beast's skin was tanned into a leather to keep homes and people warm. They wore necklaces made of ivory and animal teeth. They may even have played an initial role in the evolutionary fast track of domesticating the wolf into the early versions of modern dogs, breeding each generation of friendlier and friendlier camp wolves into man's best friend. Dolny Vestonice existed at a time when there were less than a million people alive across the entire planet. And considering how difficult it is for us to find 5,000 or 10,000-year-old settlements, how many other sites like Dolny Vestonice existed so many thousands of years ago that now all traces have long since vanished. It raises the question of whether Dolny Vestonice is a common or uncommon type of place. Over 26,000 years is a long time for the remnants of a place to last let alone be found by someone with a keen eye and appreciation for the touchstone that it is. 
the people of Dolni Vestunice were civilized, just as the Kifian tribes of the early humid Sahara at Gobro were, and similarly, they too took great care in burying their dead. Fox teeth used for cutting and the scapula of a mammoth have been found at one grave site. At multiple graves, the bodies are found with the reddish clay pigment ochre, which was likely used in some sort of burial ritual. Also, surprisingly like the Gobero site, the Dolni Vestinitse site also had a strange triple burial. Two men, likely at a younger and healthy age, were buried on either side of what was initially believed to be a woman who had some physical spinal deformity, but later was determined to be a third man. The man on the left lay on his side, facing the center man with his hand on his pelvis, which is covered in red ochre. The man on the right lay on his stomach facing away from them both, yet their arms are linked together in an eternal embrace. What could the relationship between these three people have been? What caused the spinal deformity of the person in the center? Theories have been made, but it always comes back to the fact that we can't ever be certain despite the allure of speculation. A full turn in the equinoctial procession clock has made the people of Dolni Vestunice distant specters of time, offering nothing more than a misty vision of a cold, forgotten past, just as it will be our destiny to become the same for those living one equinoctial procession into the future from now. But for how little we knew of these people, we understood their sky the most because it looked like our sky, at least for a time, during their long reign. This is the length of the equinoctial procession. 26,000 years of changing sky just to cycle back to where it began. Focusing on each of the North Stars and what has happened or thinking about what will happen under each one thousands of years into the past or future helps us even begin to grasp the timescale that Hipparchus discovered. And while it is the procession of the equinoxes that gives us a lineup of North Stars instead of just one constant lodestar, that is not the only impact of this deep season cycle. Just as the summer has longer days and winters have longer nights during the tropical year, the procession gives us a changing night sky over the course of tens of thousands of years. But just as the tropical year affects the weather and climate, so too does the procession year. But the procession is not the only deep season cycle to impact Earth. Beyond the procession, there are two other lengthy seasonal cycles that took humans thousands of years to fully understand. The 
careful attention from the likes of Hipparchus of Antiquity to 19th century mathematicians and astronomers such as J.A. Adamar and James Kroll repeatedly proved that there were other seasonal clocks hidden within the Earth's orbit. The second deep season cycle after precession is called obliquity. If the precession has to do with the wobble of the Earth, then the obliquity has to do with its tilt. The wobble of the precession is like a spinning top that is about to lose momentum and fall, while the tilt of obliquity is how far it leans from being perfectly straight up as the Earth wobbles through space. The Earth's obliquity specifically describes how the Earth tilts nearly two and a half degrees and back again every 41,000 years, creating a seasonal cycle even longer than the precession. The obliquity then gives the Earth a sort of bobbing effect, where it lists downward for about 20,500 years and then lists back up again for another 20,500. The third and final deep season is called eccentricity, which is the change of how close the Earth is to the Sun during its orbit. The Earth's orbit around the Sun stretches and contracts between a more circular orbit and a more oval orbit that repeats itself about every 100,000 years. Therefore, the eccentricity is sort of like the racetrack that the Earth spins around the Sun on, which expands and contracts like a rubber band about once every 100,000 years. One eccentricity cycle ago, humanity only began building complex structures. Two eccentricity cycles ago, the Homo sapiens species had only recently evolved into existence. Three eccentricity cycles ago, our species likely did not exist at all. These timescales are so vast that we live inside of them without truly understanding their impact on Earth, despite how significant they are. But what is their impact? For the precession, obliquity, and eccentricity to be true seasonal cycles, they need to impact the weather and climate, just as the seasons of the tropical year do. How did these deep season cycles impact what happened on the Earth in the long-forgotten past? Are the methods we use to determine this valid? How are these cycles impacting the Earth presently? How do we even know how far away the Sun is from the Earth, really? To find the answer to these questions, humans had to send some of their most adventurous, or suicidal, members to some of the most remote places on Earth to help command a true understanding of the heavens. Only after we look back to where we've come from can we truly appreciate the full impact of the procession, 
obliquity and eccentricity on our species and the planet. Listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.